0: Well, hello, everyone. It is good to be with you once again. It really is a delight. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, Acts 3. As you know, Acts is a story, a a real story, a historical story, but it's a a story nonetheless. And if if you read the pastor's desk email this past week, you'll know that, that I love stories. We all love a good story. Stories have an incredible capacity to, to draw you in, to lure you in, and to, and to grab your attention and, and to make you want to know more, like what happened, and then what happened, and then what happened. Stories have a, an, an incredible grip on our ears, as it were. The other day, I was, I was driving down the road near our house, praising Jesus in my pickup truck like a wannabe Texan. I mean, I was this close to being converted to country music and all of that. That's how dangerous this was. And then out of nowhere, this enormous brown squirrel just darted in front of me on the road. And it stopped, and it turned toward me, and it, it, it looked at me. I believe it eyeballed me and winked at me. It, it eventually, I think, put its hands up as if it was, you know, pleading for mercy, Billy the Kid just just caught by the sheriff, and, and time froze. And I was thinking, what do I do here? I'm going too fast. Well, what would you do? Well, tune in next week for the final episode of <laughs> Billy and the Squirrel and the Wannabe Texan. Friends, even the silliest make-believe nonsense stories can grab you and leave you incomplete until it's resolved. You want to know what happened to that little fictional squirrel? Let's call him Billy. I made that up. That didn't historically happen, but, but stories, whether they're fictional or factual, have an incredible ability to hook us. Why? Because there's suspense, because there's twists and turns, because they're an emo- emotional roller coaster, which, which is our lives, Stories, in in one sense, just capture, in in a rational and an emotional level, how we live our lives, characters in settings, interacting with people and stuff happening to us that affects us. Well, God made you to love stories. God did that to you, and God wrote us a story. And it captures what He wants us to know about history it makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it makes you hope, it makes you dream. It explains stuff to you. Good stories ultimately engage you and entertain you. Better stories do more than that. They, they sort of enlighten you, but God's story engages you and entertains you and enlightens you and explains life to you. It's the best story. It speaks of history. And all the hundreds of little tiny stories inside are really just part of one big master God story. Acts chapter 3, hopefully you're there by now, contains the Apostle Peter's synopsis, version of God's master story. In a few places in Scripture, we, we sort of peek up into the, the more the meta-narrative of what God is doing from beginning to end. And, and here's one place in which that occurs. Is as Peter preaches a sermon to the people who have been gathered there to, to ask about how is it possible that a, a man who's crippled, who's begging at the doors of the temple is suddenly able to walk? How did that happen? Of course, Peter is explaining that, that it's a result of of the power of the name of Jesus, and so he preaches a sermon to those gathered, and and in it we have God's master story, a story you're very familiar with, but it's important that we often are refreshed in it because his story really is ultimately about you. You feature. And the story portion in the book of Acts is continuing to this day. And so in that little sermon… I think Peter presents four sort of component sections to God's master story, and I want to walk you through that today. But I want to read the passage of Scripture up front for you, with you. It will be on the screens as well, but join me in picking up in verse 17. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. Peter says, "'And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance.'" as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So four key issues that Peter addresses there that really are part of the master story of what God's doing in history. And the first one really starts where we all start, which is rejection. Rejection. We all start ignorant of God. Every one of us starts ignorant of God. We begin essentially with rebellion toward God. Now, in the verses that we touched on last week and and that sort of precede where Peter begins in verse 17 here, we explored what that ignorance was, and in their case, that ignorance was that they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They they murdered Him. They they killed God, as it were. That's ultimate rejection. Even though He was the author of life, they they released a murderer and, and had Him killed, but being being ignorant doesn't mean that you're deemed innocent. Ignorant still makes you accountable to God. Ignorant isn't to be confused with innocence. They, they may not have known the full implications of what they were doing, but they were still responsible for that. And even if your life is unwittingly to you, mocking God, it's still your responsibility before God. You're still accountable to God. Ignorant of that doesn't make you innocent. You're guilty. You were born guilty. You were born ignorant from God. We all inherited the same rebellious state toward God that they had. And we all know from our own experience that we possess that rebellious nature. I mean, you've known that since you were this size, you know, snatching your buddy's toys in nursery or pulling at your brother or your sister's hair with a smile on your face. And if you're not convinced of that, take a trip down to the nursery section of our church this morning. We're born in rebellion. We're born rejecting God. Everyone since Adam has been born in that state And You can gripe and you can moan all day about how unfair that is, that you be held responsible for for their actions, but the reality is that they just beat you to rebellion first. You know, you got two legs from Adam and Eve, and you got two eyes from Adam and Eve, and, and I don't see you complaining about that. You would complain if you only got one leg, Right? You got more than two legs and more than two arms and more than two eyes and more than one nose from them. Everybody born since Adam and Eve also got from them a sinful disposition toward God. And whether you're ignorant of that or not, you're still to be held accountable to that before a holy God. That's not unfair. That's as unfair as, as my kids think I'm unfair when I don't let them have Skittles and Coke before bedtime or when I get mad at them and discipline them for for trying to fight it out constantly. They don't understand my sense of justice and fairness, and often we don't do uh, understand God's justice in His holy courtrooms. A holy God is not to be messed with, and and we messed with God, and and, and we killed Jesus, and, and we rejected what He had to offer. We did that. We can't just point the finger at them and say, historically, they did that. Historically, they just represented all of us. That's what the Scriptures teach and that's not unfair. Uh, if you at some point study the book of Job, it's remarkable. It's a very long book, but, but Job is desperate to have an audience with God to lay out his complaints before a holy God, and, and he has been hardly done by in life. There's no doubt that, that he has a point in one sense, but, but at the end of the book, God shows up, and he, he gets a glimpse of God, and here's what he says, "'Surely I spoke of things I did not understand.'" things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but my eyes now see you, and I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. When you stand before a holy God, you're not going to say, well, that's not fair. You're going to realize that He is just and that He is fair. And your birth in ignorance of Him and in rebellion and rejection to Him has consequences. God is a God of integrity. He cannot dismiss rebellion and maintain His integrity. There was a perhaps one of the best known theologians in church history outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul was a man called Saint Augustine of Hippo, in the fifth century. He says lots of things, lots of helpful things. One of the things he he talks about, as it relates to you and my natural disposition is that we're curved in on ourselves. It's a visual way of of depicting your your sinful condition before God. You're just curved in on yourself, and so you're into yourself so much that you will turn everything, including God, to your purposes. Now, this chapter, and we saw this a few weeks back, begins with with the healing of a crippled man And the crippled beggar is there at the gates of God's temple, essentially as a representation of all of us. We're crippled beggars at the doors of God's house, unable to do anything about it. My friends, we all start ignorant of God, we all start in rejection, and and Peter doesn't want you to miss that. But rejection or ignorance toward God doesn't have the last say. God does, and and so Peter moves toward what we call redemption. Redemption, that, that God purchases us back, but only in Christ. But He promised to do so. Look at verse 18, what what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. What God said He would do, He did. He said He would redeem, and He redeemed. Now, I know what you're, you're sitting there going like, why, 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 pastor, with a strange accent, are you saying the word redeem and redemption? What's redemption got anything to do with this? Well, well Peter focuses in on here, not on… All that God foretold concerning the Messiah, look at it closely, but what he spoke or foretold concerning the Messiah's suffering that was fulfilled. Peter's zooming in on the suffering of the anointed one or the chosen one of God to do something about the rejection of God amongst humanity. The Scriptures make it very, very clear that our offense against Almighty God, what you and I call sin, demands payment, and that that payment is death. The Scriptures uh, make very, very clear that, that, that it's fair for sin to be paid for through death in the courtrooms of a holy God, that, that insulting God brings consequences from God. God is essentially saying in, in, in all of Scripture, and certainly in what Peter's trying to draw out here, that you don't, you don't get me in your rebellious state. You don't get me the author of life in your rebellious state, and when you don't have me, you don't have life, and to not have life is to have death. Death is the consequence of rejecting God in the presence of a holy God. And so, God foretold that His chosen one would come and suffer, and that that suffering is dealing with this situation that we find ourselves in. God ultimately provides a way that satisfies His justice without compromising His integrity so that you and I cannot live in rejection and rebellion toward God and possess what Peter goes on to talk about in a few moments. That's what we call redemption. Redemption is simply God buying what was His back. I learned about redemption uh, many years ago visually. I grew up in a, in a very, very bad part of a very beautiful island that belonged to Spain. And where we grew up, you know, it was a, it was a tough ghetto-like environment, and uh, crime was rife, as was, you know, gang warfare, etc. And we were we were quite cocooned from the full implications of that as kids. But I do remember that we, we had to make sure that we, you know, had extra security in the home. You know, you, you didn't just have a lock. You had like ten locks. And, and, you know, your windows had sort of iron rods so that people couldn't break in, because People would break in. And we got broken in many times, usually when we weren't there. But sometimes we were broken into during the night, and that's a frightening thought, right? When you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, where's the TV? Someone's been walking around in here as we slept. And and I remember one time my dad making his way down to this street corner to, to meet up with some of those hoodlums who had obviously broken into our house at some point. And what they'd done was they'd stolen my brother's clarinet. It's an instrument, right? And he played the clarinet, and, and it was a very, very ins- expensive intru- instrument to my parents. And, and my brother had advanced in it, and, and somebody broke in and stole it. It was easy to steal because it was in a little kind of portable box, and so my dad knew that he couldn't go to the police. What are the police going to do? And, and he couldn't go and sort of wrestle with these guys. What's that going to do? So my, what my dad would do is he went down, and he negotiated a price with them and he just bought it back. And so you have my dad coming back to the house with the clarinet that he already owned, having bought it once again. He redeemed the clarinet at personal cost to him, even though it was always his and those hoodlums were quite happy to sell it because they just wanted some money for their next fix. Redemption, buying back what was once belonging to someone. God doesn't just ignore our spiritual distance and our spiritual ignorance and our spiritual rebellion toward Him. He He buys us back. He purchases us back, and that purchase is through the Christ's suffering. Someone has to pay. Someone has to pay sin the death that's owed. And so Jesus' suffering on the cross becomes that ransom payment for God to legitimately get back with integrity what was His all along. So redemption is possible despite our rejection, Without God ignoring sin, but only His way. And as a result of that, what's coming, what's now possible, is restoration. That's the third key component that, that Peter spends quite a lot of time focusing on here restoration. God's blessing is now available, but only in Christ, only in light of Christ's suffering. But also, as he promised, the redeemed who were formerly ignorant of God are blessed by God. If you glance at the Scriptures as a whole, we're not going to put it on the screens, but if you look at your sermon notes or in your own copy of the Scriptures from verses 19 all the way down to 26, Peter develops this quite substantially. He has said that God promised that the Christ would suffer. We've called that redemption, but he also is elaborating on the point that God promised that He would bless and is blessing and will bless. God does what He says He would do, and at the end of verse 21, again, just glance at it. He he talks about God speaking of this blessing by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. In verse 22, he talks about uh, a, a Moses-like prophet who was anticipated that would one day come, and, and, and because he's Moses-like, he would, he would represent the teachings of God, and he would perform the miracles of God in the presence of God's people. And yet verse 23 tells us that that those who do not listen to this Moses-like prophet who would come would would be destroyed from the people. They would be separated from the people of God. Verse 24 tells us that, that all the prophets spoke of this, from Samuel and all, the, and on, they proclaimed God's coming blessing. And verse 25 talks about this blessing being through Israel, specifically Israel, because they're descendants of Abraham, and ultimately quotes Genesis, "All the families of the earth will be blessed, will be restored, will not be left." in their ignorant, rebellious rebellious condition because of the work of God, for the purposes that God has in mind. So, God promised to bless, and His blessing in this little sermon that Peter presents to that audience that day really focuses on three things very, very quickly. The first one is forgiveness in verse 19, that your sins will be blotted out, that your sins would be blotted out. He's speaking of forgiveness. It's beautiful imagery there. In the ancient world, they didn't have, you know, sophisticated pieces of paper like we do, and and paper wasn't as readily available as we have it. And so, when they used paper or parchments, they, they often tried to recycle it, right? And to recycle it, they'd have to scrape off the ink that was on the previous, you know, from the previous use of the document, And that didn't get everything off. But they had to blot it out. And and essentially what they were saying is we need a clean sheet. And so forgiveness really talks about you getting a clean sheet. What a blessing from God. Because of Christ's redemption, rebels can be forgiven. We can start again. We can we can get a a clean sheet. Forgiveness is, is is blotting it all out, never to be remembered again. God forgives and He does forget. This week, I was involved in in some board meetings, and I was driving home with a friend of mine who'd flown in for them from California. And uh, he was on the phone with his wife, and he was telling her that he was going to stay an extra day with us because there was bad weather that rolled in on Friday. And as, as he was chatting to her, it was clear that he was confessing some marital misbehavior to her and, and receiving some sort of forgiveness from her. I mean, I could detect… Not that I was eavesdropping. I was just sitting beside him in the car. And so when he hung up, he said, hey, this is, this is interesting. Would you hear this, Jonathan? Uh, before I flew out to Dallas, I was packing my bag in the bedroom, and I had the TV on watching the news, and I was tired, and I was getting up early. So I went to bed, and the TV was on, and about an hour in, my wife woke me up and said, where's the TV remote control? And he was all bothered by this, right? You're waking, you're waking me up to turn, the, you know, for the remote control. And, and, and so, he sort of ignored her and fell back to sleep, and then she got him up again. And eventually, he, he got up, and he helped her look for it, but he, he couldn't find it. She couldn't find it. So, he thought, well, the best thing to do here is to, is to just unplug it from, from, you know, from the socket. Now, she had been pestering him. She said, well, did you put it under your pillow? Did you drop it under the bed? Did you pack it into your bag? Did you… I don't know. Do you have it in your pajama pockets? No. Why would I have it in my pajama pockets? Why would I pack it into my bag to go to Texas? Why would I put it under my pillow? So he unplugged it and off they went back to sleep. Well, he arrived in Dallas, got to his hotel that night, opened his bag and the remote control was in the bag. (laughs) And I loved it because what he had been doing was he had been confessing that to her in the car ride as we were heading back to my house. And we laughed. I mean, I, you, you know, if you're anything like me and him, man, you were thinking, oh, okay, could we have smuggled that remote control back without her knowing? <laughs> and could we have actually put it at the, on the side table of her side of the bed? <laughs> that would really mess with her, wouldn't it? But my good friend didn't. He confessed, and he, she, he received... Her forgiveness, and that's beautiful, right? But we all know that that's not blotted out. (laughs) A skillful spouse will bring misdemeanors back at just the appropriate time. But not with God. Your wicked sins and your wicked sinful disposition toward God from birth, blotted out, scraped away, forgiven and forgotten. You get a clean sheet. That's the blessing of restoration in light of the redemption of Jesus Christ, despite your rebellion and rejection of Him. It's beautiful. Peter also focuses in not just on forgiveness here, but on on refreshment, right? If you glance at verse 20, in verse 20, he speaks that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's an element of this, which we don't have time to get into, that speaks of what's going to happen to Israel in the future, I believe, but certainly the implications of it for the believer today are that you get the the, the sense, the inner feeling of of refreshment and communion in the presence of God as a result of Him blotting out your sins, and that's a wonderful way to live life, guilt-free, all dealt with by Him. Anybody who's done some work out in the yard and, and cutting grass or digging holes to fix sprinklers that you broke or, 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 or cutting hedges understands, in the Texas heat, understands the, 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 the refreshing feeling of, of going into the house and getting into a shower and, and wiping all that filth and that heat off. It, it feels so good. Those who are forgiven in Christ are refreshed by God Himself, what a wonderful truth and feeling that is that god promises to refresh your life with his presence and thirdly peter focuses in there on there on the return of christ and the restoration of all things because of that return of Christ, that life one day will be what life was always designed to be. No bad knees, no headaches, no loneliness, no anxiety, no, no suffering, no hospitals, no tears, no goodbyes, no separation from loved ones. All dealt with. Look at verses 20 and 21. Here's what Peter says, that, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things. There is a time that's coming when God's going to restore all things as He intended all along. That's in the future. That's part of God's story. That's part of the story of history. We refer to it as the the kingdom of God, as, as the new heavens and the new earth. One of one author that has been very helpful in my life, uh, I, I love everything he's written. Many of you who have read him also uh, will appreciate this, C.S. Lewis, another Northern Irishman, which I always love to say, as you knew that. He, one of the things I love about C.S. Lewis is that he uses fiction to try and help us grasp truth, not just at a rational level, but at a heart level to give us a sense of of Christian doctrine and Christian truth. And of course, the Chronicles of Narnia, his multi-volume work, speaks of many issues that affect your life. And at the end of it, he talks about the restoration of all things. He helps us grasp truth. He talks about the old world, and he calls it Narnia. That's our world. It's the old world, life as we've only ever known it, and it's going to be replaced by a new order, a new Narnia, and he describes the old Narnia as just a shadow, as just a copy of the real Narnia that awaits those in Christ. Then at the end of his work, he He projects a beautiful truth onto the lips of one of his fictional characters, a unicorn. And the unicorn says this when he steps into the new order, to the new Narnia. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life. And I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia so much is it sometimes looked like this place. What's coming is better, friends. And one day, if you're in Christ, when you enter the new heavens and the new earth, you will also say, I'm home. I mean, I loved that place, and I didn't want to leave that place, and I grasped onto that place, but now I know that that was just a little shadow copy of what I was made for. I'm home. This is my country. There's a key component that we must end with that is part of Peter's story here, his synopsis of all of God's story, your rejection of God is dealt with justly through redemption provided by God in the suffering Christ and leads potentially to the restoration of all things for you. But participation in the restoration of all things comes down to the fourth issue he lays out here, which is that you repent, that you repent The only gateway into the kingdom of God to that land that belongs to you is very, very clear in the Scriptures. There is no other entrance. God's redemption to a restored life in eternity for revels is is, is only applied to those who repent, which the Scriptures make clear, is another way of saying for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe are two sides of the same coin, now, that's not unfair. To limit it to those who just repent is not unfair by God. Why would God, in His kingdom, have people there who are rejecting Him, who are in a state of rebellion against Him, saying, we don't want you, why should they enter into His kingdom? Participation is only for those who repent, but He has made it possible that all repent. Paying the debt Himself, at the cross through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19 makes it very, very clear. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent and turn back. Repent and turn back. To, to repent is to change your mind literally, and when it's applied to salvation history, it's to, it's to change your, your mind, your being, your direction back toward God because it's curved in on itself, and you need straightened out. And God straightens you out in Christ, and once you're straightened out, you're, you're, you're turning to Him. You're repenting. You're believing. That miracle story at the beginning of chapter 3 is so you, you are a spiritual crippled beggar at, at, the, at the shores of God's temple, at the gateway to God's temple, but only in the name of Jesus, only by receiving Jesus, only by stretching out your heart toward Him through repentance can you receive what God has to offer in Christ. And and I know many of you have done that at some point in your life. I know that many of you have repented, and my challenge to you is, are you on a daily basis living out the repentant life? Are you expressing that you have turned to God through, through your gratitude and through your loyalty? Do you tell other people that they're crippled beggars and that you have a solution and that the solution is only Jesus Christ? They're your responsibility. Tell someone this week that you once repented and you're living the repented life, but I'm aware that there's some in here or listening that have never repented. And you're listening, or you're at church, and so you're perhaps leading a good life, and, and you smile at people and you don't cuss that much, and, and you're, you're a decent person, but, but, and you might even give to the church. you might even give the, the, the pastor, more than the pastor. I don't know, but, but none of that is a gateway into the kingdom of God. The Bible's very clear on that. And you could have sat in church for for five, six, seven decades and be lost, not heading toward the the restoration of all things in the kingdom of God. You might be part of those people who will be destroyed from the people of God that, that Moses spoke of way back in Deuteronomy. The only gateway is a change in your disposition, repentance, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the, the ability and the invitation to grasp that precious gift now, there. I laughed this week. I was reading a story of a guy called Danny Simpson. Danny Simpson, uh, in 1990, he was caught by the police for robbing a bank, uh, an armed robbery, and he got $6,000, but the police caught him. And what what made me laugh is that it turned out the gun that he used to rob the bank was an antique that was worth (laughs) $100,000. He would have spared himself a lot of trouble had he just known that. And I laugh because if you're a spiritual beggar that has never called out to God in faith for His redemption, then God and eternal life is within your grasp now. Don't blow it realize what He offers you now. It's better than anything you're trying to grasp onto. Stretch out your heart to God and, and receive Christ. Friends, the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter what happened to my make-believe brown squirrel friend, Billy. He, let's just say that he survived thanks to my incredible reflexes. It's my story. But what does matter in, in, in the once upon a time, the real once upon a time of history is, is what you do with Jesus Christ. That matters. And if you do know Him, then please live to show Him and tell others about Him. Make disciples. And if you don't know Him yet, now is your time to repent. He wants you back, and He has made it possible for you to come back. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this sermon that Peter preached all those years ago that that essentially capture the message of the Scriptures from beginning to end. I pray that that what has been said today, that, that the Word that has been scattered into the hearts of people will bear good fruit, that those who have repented would live in that repentance every day, and that those who have yet to believe would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ now in whose name we've gathered and pray, amen.